Welcome to the Profit Cash Growth Podcast. This is the podcast for six and seven figure business owners who are looking to grow a financially successful business. My co-host, Claire Hancock, is a finance director, chartered accountant, and entrepreneur. And every week, I'll be exploring guidance and frameworks designed to help you increase your profits, improve your cash flow, and grow your business. This week on the podcast, why are Britain's pub owners struggling to make a good profit per pint? And a SWOT analysis, is it just for corporate training rooms? Or can you use it in your small business? So this week, I want to tell you an um, interesting story about a company that invoiced me a, nearly a year later. It's a large gas and electric company. And they were doing a gas check on one of the properties that I own. And it was last April that we had the gas check on it. And obviously, naturally, I'm not chasing people for invoices. So they did the gas check. They went away you know, a year's gone by. And just last week, I was chased for the invoice. Now, they claimed they'd sent me the invoice. I'd never been sent the invoice. So it must have been a bit of an internal process there. And but if we went under the bonnet of that particular organization, Claire, you know, we're talking April's the works were done. February is the first time that they've chased me for that invoice. What do you think we'd see under the bonnet of that organization culture wise? And how do people continue to run a business like that? Yeah, definitely cash flow is the first thing that springs to mind. If you go a <laughs> whole year, a whole year before invoicing your customer, you know, that's bonkers. You've paid your staff for wages. You've obviously you've got raw materials, obviously electricity and, and gas is obvious. But no matter what business it is, there is a cost of delivery. Um, so to go a whole year before even um, chasing an overdue invoice is absolutely absurd. Um, and also there would have yep. been VAT on it. So you would have paid VAT over to HMRC on that invoice as well. So yeah, definitely there would be um, a cash flow impact, but also it kind of makes me think what is going on here in terms of attention to detail? That is sort of an indication that perhaps this company is lacking attention to detail because the simple processes and procedures are not in place if you're not able to identify that somebody hasn't paid an invoice. I know. Uh, I guess that's what I was going to allude to because you've you've come up with some very interesting tips that you tell people over time about the processes they should follow in their business, in their credit control departments. And they obviously believe they sent me the invoice back in April, but for the first time for them to even check that it hadn't gone into junk or, you know, you hadn't just missed it was February, the year later. I mean, what would what is the process that they should have followed, Claire? Yes, yeah, so as a minimum, every business should have what we would call an aged debtors report, which takes all of your unpaid invoices and it will tell you how old they are. So you can either do that from the date of the invoice or you can do that from the date of the payment being due. So either way you look at it, it will group it normally into columns. You'll say, are they current invoices? Are they older than 30 days? Are they older than 60 days? And are they older than 90 days? And when I worked as a finance director, my finance team at, at one point, we were collecting, you know, 25, 30 million pounds a month so we're talking huge numbers um but that 90 plus column you know the target was always to have that at zero that was always the target of the credit control team so we never allowed a customer to slip more than 60 plus days before they paid us um and that was really really critical and that was something that we talked about every single week when we had our team meetings was what is in that 90 plus and what actions is every single person doing including myself that would normally be the tricky sticky customers that I might have to jump on a call with and things like that so yeah that was a massive focus of the team to keep that 90 plus down to zero and when we work with businesses they say that businesses go out of business through cash flow not profitability and is it any wonder if 
a business can't chase for the first time their supplier in in nearly a year. So what a, what a shocker this week. Just a little story. I thought it was relevant to the stuff that we cover, so I wanted to share it. Anyway, let's talk about the news now. So this week in the news, why are Britain's pubs struggling to make a a good profit on a on a pint now. So the average profit per pint in 2019 was 27 pence. The average profit per pint in 2024 is as low as 12 pence per pint. Now, apart from anything else, I was surprised by just how narrow those margins are on a on a single pint within a pub. But if you look at the overall cost of a pint, it's gone from £3.81 to £4.80 in that time. So the overall cost of the pint is up £1 and a penny, but the profits are down from 27p to 12p. Claire, what do you think they can do and why do you think this is happening? Yeah, it's interesting how much the um, the profit on a pint has dropped. Obviously, everybody knows that um, in that time, VAT rates have changed. I think back at that point, VAT was actually seventeen and a half percent as well. Um, not in twenty nineteen, but a few years ago. So that crept into definitely nibbling away at the profit that pubs make. But one of the things that I was quite shocked to read actually um, lately was if you look at the number of people employed by pubs and bars in the UK, the number of people employed has stayed fairly static at around half a million people, but the number of pubs has declined, which is an indication that actually the cost of employment, so the number of people working in each pub is going up. And therefore, if your labor cost is consistently going up, then that's, of course, going to eat away at your profit margins. And you see that in the types of services that pubs now offer. Um, you know, you go into any pub and most of them do cocktails and cocktails take bloody forever to make. I've stood at many a bar being frustrated at why I didn't just order a gin and tonic because somebody's messing around putting basil and all sorts in my drink and yeah that, but that cost, takes time they, but they cost two three times the price of a pint of beer so you know the in, in theory uh, bottom line they should they should pay for themselves i don't think that's the biggest challenge do you think that the volume of people going into pubs is uh, is reducing and therefore you know why are people not cutting their labor is that just delay delaying an inevitably difficult conversation that they should be having or or something else no i think our expectations and service have have got wildly out of control um we all seem to want immediate service no queue we want to be able to order on app and have table service you know all of those types of things and there is a cost to that but if you think about cocktails like my example that we just spoke about i don't think that it's necessarily true that you say well you pay twice as much because a classic gin and tonic for example i know i i spent my many of my teen years working in pubs um in evenings and weekends and making a gin and tonic you literally do it in 30 seconds and the ingredients that go into it are cheap and they're pre-measured. You know, you, you put your glass up against the optic and you get a measure of gin in it. Now, it's not like that with cocktails. They've got all these fancy ingredients in them, you know, fresh fruit, herbs, spices, all of these, you know, sometimes they're even flaming the top of it. There's a cost to that. And so, yes, cocktails might be twice as much, but they probably take four or five times as long to make. And the cost of ingredients is probably more than double that plain gin and tonic. So, so I actually are you think saying the profit that the reason, margins are much So you're saying lower. the reason that they they can't make money on a pint is due to the cocktails? Well, I think generally um, they are not making as much money on a pint because people are switching to other drinks that there are not as, as much margin on. And therefore the the competition around serving a pint at a good price has become more. If you, When you used to go into a pub, you know, 20 years ago, you had pints 
or soft drinks or, um, you know, basic spirits like gin and tonics, whiskey, that type of thing. Now, there's so much choice that actually people will go into a pub and maybe order a cocktail or they'll order a craft beer in a bottle. And so therefore mm. the the demand for pints has decreased a lot and therefore the, the price becomes more important and they're having to compete on price. So if I'm charging £4.80 for a pint of of lager why am i not just charging five pound ten if my if my profit per per pint's gone from 27 pence to 12 pence why would i not just charge 30 pence more for it to make sure that i maintain my profit margin why aren't business owners doing that that small small top line pricing decision i think that the barrier of going over five pound a pint is a massive psychological thing i can remember when i was probably 17 18 working in a bar and the price of a pint went from two pound fifty she could get two pints for a fiver and it crossed into it was two pound sixty and that five pound twenty was literally people talked and whinged about that for months um that was a real psychological barrier so i think if you can't get two pints for a tenner now i think that in itself is a psychological barrier even if it isn't for the punters, it probably is for the business owner. They just can't comprehend that, mm. that that's going to happen. But well, at some point that, it's going to happen, isn't it now? Saying, saying that, I've just said 20 years ago, it was £5 a pint. So, uh, sorry, £2.50 a pint. So with inflation, yeah. saying it's £5 a pint these days doesn't seem that unrealistic. Would you accept making 12 pence profit on your £4.80 pint if you were running the pub? It's interesting, isn't it? Because... It's not... is a better question. Do business owners know they're only making 12 pence or is that because somebody's analysed the numbers and the business owner isn't in touch with his numbers? Because that's, you know, is it worth serving the pint for 12 pence? Yeah, definitely not all pubs are making those margins. Um, I think this was a um, particularly um, wide statistic analysis done, which include the likes of mm. Weatherspoons in there, for example, and Weatherspoons yeah. are literally making pence per pint. So High volume, yeah. Yeah, so certainly not not industry norm that all pubs will be making that. And depending on what beer you've got, you know, craft beer, for example, should be at high margin. Um, but mm. the sort of the big well-known brands um, would be at, at lower margins because the, the, the breweries that are selling those brands um, have so much more control in the marketplace. And obviously, that it's been t- it's been particularly tough for pub owners. The big issues stated that are causing this within the article are obviously. Um, let's start with minimum wage increase. I mean, it's hit, it's hitting mm. me hard as well. I mean, they they put a pound on minimum wage a few years ago. They're putting they're putting another pound on in April. It's incredibly painful. I mean, it's really bringing up your bottom line. Great, great for the national living wage and it is the right thing to do but i think business owners struggle to then put that money onto their products and pass that onto the consumer you've got energy bills obviously crippling for them and hopefully looking at the peak to trough that that will be a short-term a short-term thing that they can come out the other end of taking out debt during covid is a big one uh, that now they have interest payments that have now rocketed on top of that and there's also an element uh, of suggestion that the footfall in pubs has settled still slightly less than pre-pandemic. So we're not seeing the people returning to the, the pubs in the way that they were pre-pandemic. And they, that might improve as time goes on. But that's quite a lot of things to deal with as a business owner. What can they? What further things could they do? What, what would you be advising them? It's interesting, really, because I think if you look at like the history of pubs, um, 
going back to like the 1980s uh, when the the legislation changed around pub ownership and they limited breweries to owning a maximum of I think it was 2,000 pubs um, because at the time the government were particularly concerned about the monopoly that the breweries had they owned you know I think it was like 70% of all pubs in the UK were controlled um, by by the big six breweries so they changed the legislation with the aim of um, there being more independence and actually slowly we have seen that because we went from around uh, about a third of pubs being independent owned to now about 50% of pubs are independent owned and so I think that it's fair to say that there is an element of lifestyle with these pubs um, and I think when you speak to a lot of landlords that own their own pubs or even even that work for the breweries and lease them you know they they feel like they're at the heart of their community and they're not running these mm. as businesses and i think therein lies the issue they live in the property um and you know often they raise their family in the property and they know all the locals are in local communities so i think that that is where the heart of the issue lies is that this boundary between somebody's running a pub for your lifestyle and running a pub for profit is so blurred and I don't necessarily think these people are commercially minded nor do they want to be they're doing this because they love it and they just yeah, want to make enough money to live we've seen that ourselves locally we've seen a local pub that's been bought up I mean they bought the whole freehold the building it's fantastic price for it and they've reopened it as a pub haven't they and they have changed nothing. They've not even put a sign up to say it's open, uh, let alone under new management. And that pub's not been a pub for five, five, six years. In fact, it's been a homeless shelter for all that time. So, you know, is that a business owner that's bought that? Or is that somebody that liked the idea of, of buying a pub, had a bit of money, thought it's great building as well, and um, hope for the best? Yeah, and I know exactly which pub you're talking about, and it drives me yeah. bonkers because it's on one of the main roads through the town centre. And like right you say, roundabout. Yeah. I, I do not understand why there is not a sign outside saying "under new management, open, we sell beer, anything." <laughs> because it, anything. Just, <laughs> it looks exactly yeah, like it, it was like a food before. bank before. Um, yeah. And the the branding for the pub always remained there. It was a pub years ago. Um, I think it's called the Black Horse or the Black Lion, and that sign remained there even when it was um, like a homeless shelter and, and food bank. And so it does doesn't look any different from the outside so do people know it's open and it's never busy um so i actually think our town center is a really interesting um we live in leighton buzzard and for a town center there's hardly anything there there's no restaurant stuff there's all pubs and hardly any of them do food but we seem to have such a culture in our town center of these pubs being rammed with drinkers and yeah. it's very very unusual actually because there's often a thought these days that to survive pubs need to serve food and that's where the money is um but not in our town um all of the pubs do live music and things like that and they're really sort of like drinkers pubs serving car scales and all of these types of things but they're rammed mm. constantly and they seem to be thriving mm. yeah i think it's like anything if you've got the right formula then then you'll do well so mm. anyway let's move on So before we move on to this week's deep dive, I just wanted to quickly touch on last week, Claire, we were talking about A plays and B players, and I literally heard on another podcast uh, somebody talking about A plays and B plays in the same way that you were last week. And it, I just picked up a couple of stats that really surprised me. There is a study, and I must dig this out because I'm sure it's fascinating, but there's a study about being around what we would call these A players and B players in your working environment. So this was more to do with sitting next to people in the corporate environment and, and things like that. So the stat said, 
that sitting next to an underperformer in your organization will double the level of your own underperformance. However, sitting next to an overperformer can increase your performance by 15%. So the differential between sitting next to an underperformer is almost three times as damaging as sitting next to an overperformer. I just thought that was fascinating in that study and why we're constantly told that you are a culture of the environment that you surround yourself with. Mm, I think that's absolutely fascinating, actually. Um, I mean, I think back to even, you know, when we were at school, I was a class clown at school. There's no doubt about that. Um, And I look back now and now I know stats like that. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, like the impact, the poor people that had to sit next to me, um, the potential for them to learn from me, because, you know, I was... Uh, not to blow my own trumpet but I was quite academically gifted I didn't have to try very hard in school and if I just applied myself I would have rocketed but also potentially the people around me Um, but it's definitely uh, probably something for small business owners to have in the back of their mind a lot because it's very difficult to deal with underperformers you know even from a legal perspective it's difficult to deal with underperformers but from a an emotional impact of you as the manager having to even have that conversation with somebody is 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 horrible giving um yeah you know constructive feedback to somebody it and, is very very difficult and in a large organization you can carry those people in in the type of organizations that we talk to you simply can't carry them they will destroy your business and they'll take everyone else down with it yeah and difficult, you know there's there's loads of reasons why people underperform you know sometimes it's a temporary thing you know potentially something's going on in their life which means they're underperforming and you want to support them and bear with them because you're confident they'll come out the other side but sometimes people are just not cut out to do the job that you want them to do or something changes in the business and the demand on them changes Mm -hmm. and particularly in small businesses like you say you can't carry I don't like this phrase but I think it sums it up quite well you can't carry dead weight um you've mm. really got to deal with these people because where you've only got a handful of people in the office if if everybody is impacted by just 15 percent of negativity from this person then that's quite a significant reduction in in output and morale and um, results for the business sure sure so this week's deep dive is all about SWOT analysis. And is a SWOT analysis just a corporate training tool that we're all used to doing? Or has it actually got a place in the small business? So we've been watching Claire's YouTube video on this, and you can see that as well on her YouTube channel, Profit Cash Growth. And Claire's going to tell us a little bit about SWOT analysis and how you can use them in your business. Yes, I absolutely love a SWOT analysis. I think it's a really underrated tool that businesses tend not to use you see them a lot in formal business plans actually like if you're going to a bank or an investor for funding um but often they're not used on a day-to-day basis and actually once you've got a SWOT analysis um you know really you probably just need to look at it once a quarter and keep it updated um I think why I really value a SWOT analysis is when you're thinking about growing your business um you can get quite carried away with wacky ideas and out the box thinking which is fantastic to do and can be very exciting and you know can be a great tool to do some sort of blue sky thinking when it comes to brainstorming but to bring it back to what's most likely to work in your business you've got to tie it back to the strengths of your business um you know if you are a business that's particularly good at service delivery and logistics for example then coming up with an idea that requires you to do 
really heavy sales and marketing, which might sit in your weaknesses, is probably not the right strategy for you to use to grow your business. So it's a really good way of wheedling out some of those ideas and thinking, is this the right fit for us in terms of your growth strategy? It's interesting because you sort of talked about that as the individual's weakness and not specifically the business's weakness. I always look at SWOT analysis as being specifically about the business. Would you make it broader than that and look at the skills within the business and how they deploy them rather than the business itself and the market it sits in? Um, So, yeah. So when I gave that example there, I was talking about the business um, mostly. You know, I actually I tend to work with two different types of businesses. I think there's businesses that are really good at customer acquisition. So sales and marketing, they're really good at, um, you know, lead um, magnets and and drawing leads in and, and making those relationships and converting customers to buy. And then there's businesses that are very good at the Uh, service delivery the operational side of things and you tend to not find small businesses good at both actually which is quite interesting and I think that that's okay um, because if you're really good at um, sales and marketing then actually you're going to have a constant feed of customers into your business but if you're really good at service delivery then you're likely to have very loyal customers so it might be a bit more difficult to find customers but they'll be incredibly loyal and you'll probably get a lot of organic growth through word of mouth and recommendations so one isn't necessarily better than the other but you can see how if you're a business that you know perhaps you wouldn't put sales and marketing in your strength bucket why go and um, come up with a growth strategy that is dependent on a really strong sales and marketing um, strategy that just wouldn't make sense or would you use it to recognize that you are lacking in that sales and marketing function and therefore go out to fulfill the the blind spot that you have there to in, or, in order to, to grow rather than define your strategy by your weaknesses, which is what you've just described, actually use this to plug those weaknesses to ensure your business can power through those those weaknesses? Yeah, absolutely. So there's four segments on a SWOT analysis, isn't there? The strengths and weaknesses, which is your internal things. So that would be, um, you know, what 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 is your um, your team members good at? Um, you know, you talk about things like length of service, where we've got a really um, steady team that's got lots of knowledge. You might say we've got some um, very expensive equipment that our competitors can't buy. So there would be your strengths or your weaknesses would obviously be the things that you're lacking, such as we don't have a sales and marketing team. And then you've got your external factors, which is your opportunities and threats. So there you might talk about your competitors, um, government policy, um, all of those types of things would be external factors. And your strengths and your opportunities is where your growth should come in. You should grow in those areas and your weaknesses and your threats should be where you should be focusing on mitigating the risk. So like you've just said, Simon, if you identify that sales and marketing is actually your weakness, then you should be thinking about how how do I mitigate that risk and reduce that risk? And that would be to go and recruit somebody potentially. Yeah, that makes sense. So to tie this back into the theme of the week, the pub owner, can we do a live, very quick SWOT analysis so people understand how this would work in a practical environment? So if you were a pub owner, let's work through those strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats quite quite quickly and just, just to show what the framework looks like and then how you can use it. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we use that pub that we spoke about on the roundabout that's just reopened that used to be the food bank? Because maybe, just maybe they'll listen to this and get a few tips from it. Yeah. So certainly in that strengths category would be a location. Yeah. Superb. Absolutely. 
Um, it's also it's a bit of a landmark in town and everybody knows about it um, and, but our town centre is also quite small so that will come into it as well like actually the cost of marketing is going to be really low so yeah. from that perspective that would be a massive strength yeah because they could actually utilize their building itself as the marketing for that and that's free marketing you know they sh- they've got a huge building plenty of room to put up t- signs billboards or whatever they want to actually get their message across in a phenomenal location so that's a huge strength to them in terms of their ability to market what they do and also do that at little to no cost yeah i also think another strength it's got going for it is that it's in a beautiful listed building like that it's got old beams and sure, exposed sure. woodwork and it really is quite special as well so i think that that would be a massive strength that i would be leaning into a little bit more as well if i owned that pub probably on the weaknesses from um i would say that it's probably got a bit of a reputation um you know because everybody knows it as the the homeless shelter and the food bank so they've got to somehow shake that off and probably i would say that it's location it doesn't have a, a beer garden um, so that is going to be a problem. How are they going to counteract that in the summertime? Why are people going to go there versus all the other pubs in town? Actually, I think it does, but I don't know if it's more of a car park than a beer garden, mm. but it's got space out the back. So again, uh, a weakness could be that, but they could actually work on that and use part of the car park and turn it into something that's going to attract people for the outside yeah. space. Absolutely. What about it doesn't do food? Is that a weakness? Yes. Well, I don't, it's interesting because my immediate <laughs> reaction was to say yes, but as we've just discovered, to be a thriving pub in Leighton Buzzard, to? you don't need to do food. Um, no. But potentially, that's something that could sit in the opportunities section is that there are not many food pubs in our town centre. All of our food pubs are like yeah. scattered around the edge on the canal and are quite a walk away. Um, sure. So I would say that that is an opportunity is that our town centre does not have a strong um it doesn't have any pubs really that offer good food that you know they do like burger and chips and jacket potato but nothing that offers you know like really good pub grub that you'd like to go down the pub and stay for a meal so that's a massive opportunity there so if we move into the sort of external factors the opportunities and threats should we start with let's start with threats because i think it's probably a little bit easier because then you can uh, paste your opportunities on top of that so one of the threats i guess we've talked about the market you know if the market has returned footfall in that market's returned at below pre-pandemic levels and it's a threat to watch that that market may be in decline yeah massively i mean consumer trends generally is always a threat to pretty much every business um because you know, just thinking about um, like how much people are not drinking and how healthy people are trying to be these days. Like, actually, I think that I know personally, um, we always struggle when we're thinking as a couple to go out because I um, am very into sports and fitness. I have been on a diet for about 25 years now. So I'm always thinking I don't want to go to the pub and eat food, but you particularly like going out and you're naturally blessed without having to watch your waistline. So that is a massive thing in terms of like how people are feeling about their health and fitness and whether they're drinking, whether they're eating mm. fatty foods, all of those types of things go into it. Yeah. Great. And what about the the sort of opportunities? Yeah, so obviously we touched upon the fact that in the town centre, there are no other pubs offering um, a strong food offering. So that's a massive opportunity. Um, in terms of the marketplace, there's definitely a gap there. But also in um, Leighton Buzzard, it sits, it sits on the Oxbridge Arc. Um, that's the arc between 
Oxford and Cambridge, the Milton Keynesland and Buzzard areas, bang in the middle of that. So it's seen massive, massive amounts of house building and regeneration going into the area and investment into rail and um, transport links. So from that perspective, yeah. the population is booming. It's growing. It's it is, growing. Very it is much growing. growing. Really yes. Quickly. So you know, we talk about there there may be an overarching footfall issue in pubs in general, but that could be counteracted by a growing, a significantly growing population mm. around the area. The number of chimney pots that are going up is getting bigger and therefore they can service that audience. What about things like um, entertainment or experiences or that type of thing? Do you think that's an opportunity for, for pubs? Yeah, definitely. So people, one of the things that we see in Leighton Buzzard, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, see this across most of the UK is that the the trend in people wanting an experience led evening when you go out you know you don't just want to go and sit in a pub anymore you want to go and do something so if there's a games night on then you'll go to it if there's a wine tasting night you'll go and do that rather than just going to the pub mm. and people are more mm. than happy to pay for these things um when it's a good experience so yeah Absolutely. there's an opportunity there you know just you know quiz nights we go to a, a pub quiz most weeks don't we and it always pulls the punters in so there is a lot of opportunity to just have that sort of event-based pub that really makes you a bit more of a destination. Brilliant. Well, I think if you're a business owner and you've not done a SWOT analysis, I think you can see from that demonstration alone the huge value that already that small little pub has just got from us doing that. I wish they were here to hear it. Maybe we'll we'll draw it up and pop it through their door, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think make some time, focus on it, do your own SWOT analysis. Claire, is this a, an evolving document that people should be doing? Should they be doing it once a year? How would you, how would you approach this? Yeah, I would say do it initially. Um, and it really, you know, we've just done it in a few minutes and got a few ideas down there which immediately should give somebody an idea of where they could grow and then also where their risks are so even if you just spend five or ten minutes and you come back to it once a month once a quarter just get it down on paper and just keep it refreshed probably at least at least every six months I would say have a look at it yeah. and I will also put a template on my website that you can download for free as well so if you go to profitcashgrowth.com um, and go to the free resources section I'll make sure that there's a template there for you. Loving it. Brilliant. Thanks. Well, let's move on to Profit Cash Growth Extra. So what have you got this week for us, Claire? I actually thought that this was your tip this week, Simon. I'm happy to take it. I thought you had a better one. Mine is Canva because I absolutely love Canva. So uh, it's I was late to the party with this. Hands up. I was using the Adobe packages and everything around that for my business. And Canva is mind-blowing, completely and utterly mind-blowing. So what what does it cost, a tenner a month, the subscription on that? Claire? Yeah, I think it's like ten ninety nine, yeah. including that. Blows your mind. I mean, everything, the graphics for this podcast, the graphics for our YouTube channel, uh, entire offer graphics for my business. If you just spend the time educating and training yourself on how to use it and it is incredibly easy to use you are gonna it is gonna pay dividends in your business a hundred percent i'm um gutted that i sat on the sideline for a little longer than i would have liked 
and just dived into uh, understanding it and training myself on it and just getting to grips with it because it really is user-friendly. Anyone could do it. It's a web-based platform and there's not a lot you can, you, not a lot it, it won't do from graphics to even moving animations, which I absolutely love. Do you have, you use it a lot, Claire. Do you have anything else to add to that that um, really works? There's lots of AI tools in it as well. Oh, the AI really tools cool. are fabulous. So oh. for example, um, you know, if you take a, a photograph with a, a weird background and you think, oh, I, I want to, get rid of the background it will do that for you um yeah. you can edit the picture so, so actually, well as well yeah so there was a picture i had of myself and i really liked it but i was wearing an orange shirt um and apparently the color orange um brings along thoughts of being cheap <laughs> and i didn't want to look cheap so i thought oh i'm going to change the color of my shirt and canva did that for me um also you can type in you could say something like um create me an image of a panda standing on an elephant eating popcorn and it will create yeah. it for you so it really is mind-blowing the ai tools in canva actually and they are super quick and easy to use as well because you are literally typing in what you want to see rather than like with adobe you have to i think it's a bit more about editing but i mean yeah. when when i looked into canva because i didn't really know much about it i was staggered to learn that canva's only been going 10 years and mm. they've got 100 australian lady yeah yeah an australian um techpreneur um mm. created only 10 years ago and um, it's floated now um and i think she only owns about 20 percent of it but um it's got 135 million users so it's absolutely staggering how popular canva is and there just doesn't seem to be anything else that's rivaling it there's lots of other platforms out there um but nothing that seems to be touching canva's dominance when it comes to um sort of small business um design and content software it truly is phenomenal yeah it's the non-pro element as well, isn't it? Adobe are fantastic, but you really need to know your stuff to use mm. the Adobe uh, packages. I use a bunch of them, but I probably scratch the surface of 5% of what they're capable of doing. They really are professional tools, whereas Canva really crosses all, you know, it gives you the professional results, but with a, a an amateur ability to use it. It's, it's an incredible, incredible business and tool. I think that's going to go on to be absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it already is massive, isn't it? It's, it does over a billion Bigger. turnover a year. But um, it's not just for small businesses as well. That was the other thing that sort of blew my mind when I started. I think I read an article about Canva, which has got me going on this. Um, but, you know, big companies like L'Oreal use it in their marketing department. Mm. So the, the power of the tool is phenomenal but it's done in an incredibly user-friendly way you literally go on a website and you can figure it out like you don't need any training and but if you do of course there's so many people doing like free youtube videos and stuff telling you how to use it so yeah canva is mind-blowing brilliant well thanks for another great week's chat claire as always if you go to profitcashgrowth.com you've got all the free resource and library there you get the SWOT analysis template that we've discussed also go to the youtube channel profit cash growth if you want to look at the video around SWOT analysis or any of the videos that we cover on this podcast to go into a deeper dive and as we discussed last week uh, there's a free assessment for your business the profit cash growth assessment uh, you can answer 20 questions quickly understand what your blind spots are and how you you can build a strategy to plug them and improve your knowledge and your capability to help you improve your profits, increase your cash flow and grow your business. <laughs>